the Evolve to Succeed podcast, where founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders, and experts are interviewed to explore the link between personal and business success. We will also investigate and establish the need for ongoing personal development, accountability, and support. The objective is to inspire you, the audience, to be better in life and in business. Welcome to this week's episode of the Evolve to Succeed podcast. My guest on this week's episode is Paul Tanzi, Managing Director of Paul-based digital marketing company Intergage. Paul began his first business aged just 21. And as you'll hear, he went on to establish several more businesses in a variety of different sectors. In his time, he has achieved some great heights and successes, as well as experiencing some immense challenges and lows that included the failure of that initial business. Paul prefers to describe those challenges and lows as learning experiences. It's this attitude, in my opinion, that has ultimately been a significant key to his success. Amongst other things in this podcast, Paul reveals the shocking moment he realised he'd been overworking for far too long. And then taking a reading, and as my wife is putting the cups of tea down on the table, saying, what are you doing this afternoon? I'm saying, well, I'm very busy afternoon, I need to go back to the office now. And she said, no, you're not, actually, you're going to hospital right now. The important lessons he took from this health crisis. Out of that comes some really hard, harsh lessons, which is, if you don't look after yourself physically, then you can't look after yourself mentally. And if you get that whole time balance distortion thing going on, you kid yourself, don't you, that you're, you're doing it for all the right reasons. And talks about the importance of a strong sense of purpose within your company. If you don't get those things right, and you're not open and transparent with everybody about what you believe and why you think you're here, you, you can't attract people. If you do get it right, then I think certain businesses become magnetic. Let's get on with the show. So, Paul, welcome to the Evolve Succeed podcast. Uh, thank you for having me, Warren. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you back as a full guest. We had you on the podcast a few weeks ago talking about your views on flexible working, working from home and all of those benefits, which was really well received. So I'm now keen to hear your story or for our listeners. Uh, I know a little bit about your story, but for our listeners to hear your story in full. I'd be very happy to share it. That's great. So my understanding is that prior to being one of the original founders of Intergate, you had a very successful career in sales and sales management. So I think it was 17, 18 years ago now, something like that, you were one of the co-founders of Intergate. So why leave a successful career in sales and be a founder of a sort of new business? Well, that's a good question. I, I think on the run-up to the year 2000, I, I was in software sales doing what I've done most of my career and, and selling accounting systems, which, forgive me, Warren, I know you're an accountant, but accounting yeah, systems... Forgive me for that, full stop. <laughs> <laughs> but accounting systems, software sales was terribly dull, and I'd been doing it for six years on the run-up to uh, the year 2000, which is when you know we were promised the planes would drop out of the sky and, every, and the millennial bug would, would kill everybody and everything. And, um, of course, it didn't, but lots of people bought accounting software, so I was in the right place at the right time. But I'd always sold CRM software, and this was just supplementing that with accounting software as well. So on the run-up to the year 2000, I was very much um, getting a little bit of fatigue 
uh, in terms of I'd be doing the same thing for six years and I need to do something different. It looked around and went, well, okay, the, the internet looks like where all the action's going to be. So as a salesperson, it always helps to um, swim with the tide and to, to jump into places where the action, particularly in IT, looks like it's going to be you know fairly intense. Yeah. And the internet looked like the place. And um, my brother... Um, had written some software. My brother is a brilliant software developer, and uh, I'm a software salesman. So sooner or later, my mother was uh, was constantly saying, "Why isn't it you guys don't work together?" And okay. and then so one Christmas, she asked the question, "Why isn't it you guys don't work together?" And we said, "Well, actually, in February, uh, 2003, we will be starting to work together for the first time." So you know, and that was great. You know, the, there are pluses and minuses of going into business with your family. Yeah. Um, but, you know, my brother's a decent and honest guy. He's also incredibly talented. And for a long time, we had a lot of fun together yeah. So, uh, in growing a business. And uh, myself, my brother, and another founder, Mike Finn, started the journey together. We brought in a, a guy called Will Noble to be the managing director so that I could go out and make loads of sales. Mike and, 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 and Harry could make the websites happen. Mike would design beautiful things. Previously, he'd been designing beautiful things that weren't very clever. And Harry had, be, had been designing clever things that weren't very beautiful. So fitting those two together was uh that was good. They worked together for a couple of years before I got involved, but neither of them was particularly um, sales orientated. And okay. they both decided that in order to, to make this work properly, they needed somebody with a sales background. That was me. Okay. And so the four so, of us embarked on the journey together. So there's an interesting part there, isn't it? Because a lot of people maybe you know start a business on their own or they start their business with A and other, but there was effectively four founders yeah, yeah. And we, yeah we all, in that business. Yeah, we all decided that we would support ourselves for six months and put in £10,000. And that's okay. how the journey started. So it was, you know, it was whatever it took to make that work from that point onwards, really. And that was all about, at that stage, Intergage was all about websites, content management systems. And, you know, and I suppose that was a hot. It was really hot. I mean, in the year 2000, when we were talking about software as a service yeah. and building websites for, for people, and typically, you know, there was very small businesses we were servicing. We're building websites for two, three thousand pounds back in those days. They were relatively simple compared to, yeah. what, to what they are today, you know, having to work on all these different devices and things that they have to work on today. And, and everything's become a lot more strategic in web, web design now. But back then, it was relatively simple. We put together, you know, relatively simple websites pretty yeah. quickly, uh, provided the, the customers did their homework, which was a problem later as we started to grow. And yeah, it was just good fun. We, uh, you know, we had the, the four of us doing what we were all best at, we grew a business very quickly, as you know, for the first two or three years, we wrote business plans and relentlessly hit the numbers. And it was just really good fun. And it was in that, that early stage of the business when you get this massive adrenaline rush, when you realize that actually this business is viable. And it's yeah. going to work. And yeah. that you've, is you've just, had that leap of faith, and yeah. you've taken a leap of faith, and it yeah. starts to work. And there's nothing more exciting. As you, you've seen it over and over again. When when people put it all on the line, and it starts to work, it's such a buzz. And going out and making sales, I was literally cold calling, making my own appointments, and uh, going out and making sales, and coming back, bringing the orders back to the guys who were processing them, and then because. When I made that work, the next obvious thing was to get a tele salesperson in to make the appointments for me so I could spend more time creating chaos. And, uh, yeah. and that's exactly what I did. And then, then it was a question of bringing other people in and teaching them to make the sales and building a sales team. And, um, and that's the way it went. Wow. And it was brilliant. It was good fun. It was good fun. Good. And when you look back now, were they the, the best days? In many ways, Warren, they were absolutely the best days. For me personally. Yeah. Uh, because... I think sales is fantastic. 
you know, as a career, being a software salesman, I would say it's probably the most fun that I could have as a job. You know, yeah. basically it involved meeting very bright people, driving usually somebody else's car and to, um, to, to meetings to meet with very bright people who had business problems that you could solve. Invariably, you'd get paid handsomely for doing it. Oh, and out of it always popped some good friends. So yeah. it was, a, you know, there was always a constant stream of really great people that I'd met who would cross that divide between, well, you know what it's like. You're many yeah. of, your, of your social circle or clients you, you've had for a long time, people like, uh, you know, like us and all the people we know that we've met in business locally who, you know, where, where is that dividing line between customer and friend? Yeah. There's friendly, many people who do leap over that dividing line. And, and I just found that making friends for a living, selling technology products was probably the most fun I could possibly hope a job to be, really. And when it's your own business and you're doing it, the buzz is immense. Yeah, no, definitely. And and I suppose, did you always have the ambition that one day you'd run your own business? Oh, I'd already done it. Um, oh, okay. Um, in, in my 20s, I ran two businesses and failed twice. Okay. So, Tell us a little bit about that then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, in, in, the way I like to look at it is that... In my early 20s, what happened was that while all my friends were going to college and, and university and learning about business, I was out there doing it. I mean, I set up my first business when I was 22, I think, uh, with a, a friend of mine called Simon. And I was called Paul. And so we called our sales and marketing recruitment business Paul Simon. <laughs> and it took off like a bomb. It, okay. it, it just went like a homesick angel. It was just fantastic. And, and we just, you know, we were, I guess, in the Thatcher era. Yeah. Um, back then and it, you know there was the yuppie era it was it was incredibly difficult not to succeed it seemed because the economy was just on such an up and although it would all crash in a couple of years time and we would be victims of that we set up a sales and marketing recruitment business we'd never done um, recruitment before either of us but it didn't seem like too difficult a job it proved not to be to be fair our, our financial year ended after six months and we'd made more than fifty thousand pounds net profit in six months from a standing start and Bought ourselves cars and uh, and yeah, had a good time. Yeah, lifestyle as yeah. well. So it was one of those times when it, every again it was one of those times when everything seemed to align and it was just taking off. And well, you know, we didn't know that it was unusual for twenty two and twenty three year olds to be running successful businesses because yeah. it was just what our experiences were. But I look back now and go, actually, it was pretty unusual for you know yeah. for for young guys like that to be running business and we thought we'd have 10 of them by the time we were 25 and that we'd be millionaires and and that's what we thought we genuinely believed it and looking back i can see why we believed it and but, what happened was it the economy yeah i mean there is a couple of places that it's really difficult to be when a recession comes along yeah and recruitment we discovered was one of them so yeah. basically we made um, a fair bit of money setting up in bournemouth and, and that was a successful business and we used that money to set up in southampton and we okay. said to our bank manager if we make this work in southampton will you fund us to have another 10 of them in really short order and basically what would happen is that simon and i would and um, find managers for those two businesses and spend our whole time opening new offices with a view to being millionaires by the time we were 25 right. and do you know what the bank manager said if you make it work in Southampton, that'd be good. We'll do that. Right. And we did. We made it work in Southampton just as the Southampton business started to make money. And then a recession came along. We did. We, we were naive and didn't know what that meant. Um, but making that kind of business work in the same way in a recession was going to take a whole lot more experience than either Simon or I had. That's when you do need a shed load of experience in whatever industry you're in and yeah. recruitment in particular, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, and to be fair... 
And I look back and say, my ego got in the way. Yeah. Uh, because I'd promised all these people I'd taken on that we were going to conquer the world. And, you know, I'd always had the mantra that I'm going to pay you guys first. I'm the one who's last on the payroll. We're going to make this work. And, you know, I, I honestly didn't believe that it was possible to fail given the start. I just thought the momentum was massive. And we'd get through whatever this thing that was a recession was. And with hindsight, I didn't make the cuts I needed to make deep enough or quickly enough okay. for the business to survive. So ultimately, we were incompetent. Uh, if I'm really harsh about it, because we weren't experienced enough to, to naive, I would say. Yeah, as a as a director now, looking back, there's a fine line between naive and incompetent, and I'm not sure. Yes, I could make the gentle excuse that I was naive, but you know, when whenever a session or when a you know these kind of extraordinary circumstances come about, sometimes as directors, we just have to make tough decisions and make them quickly. And it's not fun, but it's no. the thing that we're there to do, isn't it? And that when that business went down, life got suddenly got very, very hard. You know, I found myself negative equity trapped at home. Uh, we are, my family was expanding. We had a two-bedroom house that was suddenly, which was great for a you know, 24-year-old to be owning a, a, yeah. any kind of house. But, but suddenly I had too many children for that house and the house was getting really, really small. And we were negative equity trapped. And I still can hardly believe that when I turned around to my wife and said, do you know what, Tanith? I know that we're deep in the shit and that I'm going to be going to um, to court to defend the Abbey National repossessing our house next week. Uh, but I'd like you to trust me to set up my second business now. <laughs> <laughs> That's a loving wife that provides some support at that point. Did you know what she did? And oh, she wow. said she had the belief. And we were at this stage, we were unbelievably poor really and it's there was there came in a point one day when i had to actually cycle i had a bmw outside with no petrol in it and i couldn't afford to fill the tank up and i'd actually gone under all the cushions in the settee to try and find all the small change and i'd run out of that and i actually couldn't afford to to buy food for the kids one night and i had to cycle to my parents house borrow a couple of cans of beans and cycle back again and that was a really long journey but on the way back i sort of said Mm, what do I want to do? Uh, uh, but I think I went wild. You know, I'd become an entrepreneur and it was just like, I, I wasn't thinking, do I go back and get a job? I was just thinking, what do I do next? And, and because I'd learned about this software product that I'd been using as a recruitment consultant and I was falling in love with it, I'd phoned the people who sold it to me and said, I want to sell this. And um, and they'd said, yes, absolutely. We can set you up as, as a distributor, giving me a great opportunity I thought, right, I'll set up my own business selling this software then and set off again. And um, Wow. And that's how you got, ultimately got into software sales then? Yeah. I, I, I basically borrowed enough money off my dad and let and he let me use a spare room in his house um, such that I could afford to now put some petrol in the BMW, buy, uh, buy some business cards, which I spent a lot on with some... Then my business cards looked a million dollars. You know, I was so poor that I figured that <laughs> my business cards had to look a million dollars. I needed some money to buy a fax machine because I was determined to get some orders, which would then come in by fax. Yeah. And um, and in fact, I I still had nice suits from my success in in recruitment. I had a nice car and I had nice business cards. And I would turn up at. I remember starting that business and it really going well. When I start, turned up at Thorny MI in Reading. And managed to convince them to buy 50 users of this software, which is the, one of the biggest sales in the UK of that software at the time. And they didn't bother to look into my company, thankfully. You know, I, did, I, I believe I did a great job for them, I'm, I'm quick to say. But 
you know, at the time when they placed the order, I didn't actually employ the staff I needed to provide the trading and implementation. I didn't even have the fax machine for them to send the order through to. <laughs> so I had to go and get both of those things in order to service that order. And, uh, and then we set off, A, impressing that client, which we put everything into and, and did, and so that they would be a reference for future clients and started to grow new business, which would soon have an office in Manchester, uh, an office in Cambridge and an office in Bournemouth. Wow. So this sounds like a success. And for a while, Warren, it too looked like a success. Right. Um, but again, naivety. Uh, you know, I was mid-20s. I'd learned one harsh lesson, but, you know, but sales was my thing. And I thought, well, you know, this is working and I'll train other people to do it. And had some brilliant people working with me. We were having a lot of fun selling this software. And the beauty of that software, by the way, was that you used it to sell itself. Right. So that it was, you know, I was actually using the thing that I was selling to other people day in and day out and showing them how I did it. So if I said I was going to, I said, I'll guarantee to call you at seven minutes past 11 next week. And the CRM system would set an alarm for six minutes past 11. I'll, I'll make a point of calling you at seven minutes past 11 just to prove that this software turned me into a sales robot, a machine, a terminator. Yeah, Pro- yeah process. That, yeah, so, yeah. That, that would enable salespeople to finally become efficient. Uh, because they're not naturally good at that kind of thing, as you know. Anyway, so that that that's yeah. I've got to ask what happened. What happened? Well, the product was called Telemagic, and back in the day, that was it was a brilliant product, but it wasn't owned by Sage, and and then it was, and and then they reduced the price by almost half and reduced our margin by almost half, and so my entire business model suddenly like reliance on one product one. I, uh, I realized about six months too late that, that I needed to di- di- diversify and build, you know, other products into our model. But it was so elegant, so beautiful, such a simple thing to sell one product day in, day out, become so expert at it that I was addicted to it and we were really good at it. So, And you were having success. Yeah, that. that's right. And it occurred to me that we needed to, you know, perhaps diversify, but it wasn't urgent. Yeah. And so I started very early to, uh, we started very early on our journey to diversify when we got the news that our main product that we sold was now owned by somebody else and the pricing model was slashed and the margins were slashed and by the way we had another, now had 2,000 competitors where previously we had about 10 so going into the intergage piece mm. you're slightly scarred and wounded you'd gone off and had a career in software sales yeah, and yeah, a successful one at that but you must have felt slightly scarred and wounded and afraid going into intergage yeah, I guess. I think that I could see the stars aligning going, yeah. you know, um, as I said, we looked at the internet in the year 2000 and went, that is absolutely the place to be. Um, scarred? Yeah, I guess. I, I could, like I say, I'd look positively on those things and say, well, as you have to in life, that yeah, every, every time you fail. Take the lessons fail, out of things. Yeah, it's, it's a lesson, right? So how much would it have cost me to go to business school to learn how to 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 grow a business and to be able to run a recruitment business and software business, which, okay, they both failed for reasons that I could claim were beyond my control, um, but that would be abdicating responsibility. You know, I could have done better in both instances, but that was terrific lessons. Yeah. And and there's a big thing, you know, it's it's said about the UK compared to the US or Europe against the US, you know, US, you know, you, you haven't succeeded unless you failed, really. It's (laughs) kind of the attitude is that they don't, they they don't expect overnight success. They don't expect the first business to be the one they they expect you, you know, they don't frown on people that as you have done so, so eloquently on this podcast, Paul, to 
to tell the story of failure so that you can learn from it and others can learn from it as well. And they embrace that. Yeah. But we don't tend to do that in the UK. No, we tend to sort of brush um, brush over um, what we might deem as failures. But yeah. as I say, let's take a positive attitude to that, that failure is a learning lesson. And in our businesses today, we, we all embrace, I think, that you know, failure is a learning opportunity. Um, so no, I, I look back and go, well, you know, I had the best possible education in my twenties yeah. and, um, and that, that really set me up in terms of things. The lessons that I'd learned were hard, hard learned lessons and, and, I, and selling CRM systems to people for a long time meant that I had the privilege of getting under the skin of a lot of sales and marketing operations. So I'd learned quite intimately about how business was done, both as a sales and marketing recruitment consultant, where I'd met lots of sales and marketing executives, managers and directors, and then subsequently going into sales operations and, you know, helping them engineer them with software that gets right under the skin of how those operations and processes work and how different industries sell. So I felt pretty well equipped you know, with my own sales background and all of this knowledge that I picked up about all these different skills to go, okay, right, I've had a privileged um, education in how sales and marketing works and the, the internet is clearly going to be a massive part of how sales and marketing works in the future i had no idea how massive yeah. in, the, in the year 2000 <laughs> but that but that would all come into play later on as there's the intergage journey kind of unfolded and i suppose that's the question i'd say is you know I now ask you is it 17 years on mm. now 2020 and a lot's changed in the the, the web world the digital world technology's changed how we do business has changed full stop in 17 years. So what's evolved and changed about Intergage in that 17 years, Paul? Well, uh, that's interesting because having set off as a software sales business, really, we sold websites so that we could sell software. Yeah. That was how the model worked. And the software was a subscription service that people paid you know, initially £99 a month for and then slightly more as, it, as we started to bundle in lots more education and training services into it. About 2006, 2007, something really weird happened, which was that the world decided that the sort of software that we'd spent all this time developing and selling would now become free of charge. Right. And something called open source happened, and products like WordPress and Joomla and Drupal yeah. suddenly started to come on the marketplace. And and while there are always pros and cons to open source versus closed source, and uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a convert completely to open source software because I think that... You know, for example, we have lots of clients who've been using open source software um, before they came to us, and they found that there was the you know they were frequently hacked. You know, people know how to how, yeah. how to hack open source software. You know, coming into work and finding that your website is now about penguins or about Viagra <laughs> is a little disappointing for most businesses. That can happen easily. Yeah, it wouldn't work yeah. for an accountant. <laughs> no, 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 indeed, that was a bit of a blow. You know, um, deciding finding out that actually. You know, and it's very unique. I, I don't think yeah. that accounting software in those has ever become really open source in a big way. I don't yeah. think that's really happened. You know, Sage, who were once the giants, have been out evolved by the yeah. likes of Zero yeah, and QuickBooks definitely. and things. Um, you know, I think their arrogance and their complacence in the marketplace yeah. led to that. But I think that, you know, that, that happens in almost every marketplace. I did. All the big software providers, software houses in some way, shape, or form were disrupted, probably around that time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that whole moving into the cloud and the software as a service thing. So, so firstly, yes, we our software model had to fundamentally change. And that had happened because while we were teaching people how to market their websites, once they bought the software from us and the website from us, the next thing they wanted to know was how did search engines work and how did online advertising work. Yeah, And we were training people how to do this. And, and out of that came a lot of people who said, 
this is really interesting. Glad you showed us how it works. Clearly, it takes a lot of time and effort and skill. And um, and actually, we've got a day job. It's called doing our core business. Yeah. So could we get you to, as our tra- as our educators to take over doing that for us? Because we can clearly see that you know what you're doing. And in doing that, then we became we we spawned a services business off the back of it, which was about contract marketing so people right. were saying you know can i pay you to do your so outsource contract yeah. marketing and so that revenue stream grew quickly to be at least equal to our software revenue stream okay and so as our software revenue stream which reached somewhere between 35 and forty thousand pounds a month in terms of you know, money that was coming in by direct debit every month without us trying which is yeah. fairly reasonable but this new revenue stream was getting to overtake that so we became we, we as the software business started to sort of get, be affected then what was happening was our service business, our contract marketing business was taking off. And, and that was great. And, so and there was a natural pivot that started to happen, I suppose. Yeah. All we had to do was accelerate that, what, right. was, what was already happening in our business. And, um, and start to think about what the future of that software product would be. Yeah. And it wasn't clear to us what that, what that looked like at that stage. But having sold CRM systems um, back in the past, yeah. I could see that, you know, the website was now becoming an integral part of the way people bought and therefore the way people sold. Yeah. And today there there maintains a massive gap between what CRM does and what the website tells you. And so that presented another opportunity. Okay. So for, and what I mean by that is quite a simple thing. If your best customer visits the how do I cancel my contract page on your website, your account manager should know about that. Right. Similarly, if what happens is that a new hot prospect is visiting the pricing page and um, reading perhaps about the team, that behavior tells you that it might be a good opportunity to phone them and close that deal. Yeah. But too often what happens is what's going on on your website is complete mystery to your sales team. Yeah. And so joining the website to a CRM system makes perfect sense. So you remove that invisibility cloak that otherwise does yeah, exist. It, it, it literally unearths new sales opportunities because, okay. you, you know, th- what you can do is you can score behavior. You can say, well, you know, if somebody visits the homepage, it's worth one point. If somebody visits a product page, maybe it's worth X points. If they visit the pricing page, Y points. If they download a white paper and then open a follow-up email, well, how many points would you give that? If they click on the link in that follow-up email to go to the landing page for the special offer, how many points would you give that? When those points accumulate, when that behavior tells you that that prospect is ready to buy something, now you're in a position to actually take action if you know that that's happening. And the likes of HubSpot have been um, very, very bright, very, very good for our industry in terms of promoting that kind of you know that inclusive crm marketing automation email marketing solution and so we became a reseller for them uh, while we worked on creating our own and evolving our own software into something that would be appealing to the small and medium-sized business market that, that we served brilliant and that's where you sit now in the market indeed we are we are a platinum reseller for hubspot but we quietly have evolved our own system, which we're about to launch. So, okay, fantastic. So, so that will be, you know, our software will be reborn as a CRM marketing automation system linked to a website that is affordable. Um, so we will be preaching the gospel of, you know, websites and CRM linked up selling and marketing um, so that it's all just one big system and, and automating everything. The potential is amazing. Wow. 
Well, watch this space. Hey? Absolutely. I'm excited to hear and learn more. Well, I'm about to... <laughs> imminently by the sound of it. I'm about to go back into software evangelist mode. Yes. Okay. And, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Brilliant. So, but along that way, there has to have been some significant challenges. I mean, that's oh. a long story, you know, a long journey to get from where you were to where you are and, you know, to feel as positive as you do now. Mm. When you look back, you know, what's, what would you have said that, Within the intergauge story, you know, what's been your biggest moment of despair? Do you think? Well, I, I, I think the the point when we were growing really fast and we were making lots of sales, but our bank account was diving uh, because we were we were growing and taking on additional overhead, and and yet we seemed to lack the cash flow. Uh, somehow, something was going wrong, and our. our we had a £100,000 overdraft facility with our bank and they were very understanding because they liked that they could see the way we were building recurring yeah. revenues. And one day, our then managing director, Will, turned around and said, well, our overdraft is currently 125,000 chaps. I'm fed up of all this. It's keeping me awake at night. It's doing my head in and I've got other plans. So um, I'm going to go and do something else. <laughs> that was a challenge. Uh, and everybody kind of looked at me and went, so you'll be the new managing director then, Paul? And I kind of looked back and looked around and, and I went, uh, okay, then. I was, I was quite happy being the sales director, actually. Yeah, I was quite enjoying life. <laughs> yeah. That was kind of where I, where I felt I needed to be. But um, being a managing director 2006, 2007 that year was having to turn around a business from minus £125,000 cash position. Well, 18 months later, we had our first £100,000 positive cash, cash position. And, but that took an awful lot of work. And it was, it was, uh, with hindsight, it, I mean, I, I, I don't think I'm overplaying it when I said I nearly died. And um, because I had a medical examination, which I talked about um, quite openly, uh, where I had a, um, a routine medical for an insurance product. Uh, you know, the ones where they come to your house yeah. and they take your blood pressure. Take swaps and yeah, yeah, all of that, yeah. And, and so, yes, I'm I'm sat there with my shirt off being medically examined by a nurse. And um, and my wife has offered the nurse and I a cup of tea and she's gone off to make it. And she's come back in with a tray uh, just as the nurse is putting one blood pressure machine back in her bag and saying, I think that machine might be faulty and taking another one out and strapping it onto my arm and, and, and then taking a reading. And as my wife is putting the cups of tea down on the table saying, what are you doing this afternoon? And I'm saying, well, I'm very busy afternoon. I need to get back to the office now. And she said, no, you're not actually, you're going to hospital right now. And um, she, she told me what my blood pressure reading was. It was astronomically high and, and she said, um, you're in real danger and you have to get to the hospital. Not tomorrow, not at some point in the future, but this afternoon, cancel everything and go. And just as my wife, Tanith, had come in, just <laughs> to hear that news, um, you know, I'll never forget the moment when she looked up and her uh, eyes were full of tears and she oh, knew that I'd been God. overworking. And, and, you know, we had that moment where we just looked at each other. She knew it. I knew it. I'd been overworking for a long yeah. time. And, and I'd stopped exercising and I was smoking and um, I was binge drinking on a Friday just to take the pressure off and just beha- all those behavior things, the traits that you know you're relying Very on. Very easy to slip, slip into in the crutches that we all yeah. bear at times. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I went to hospital and they and repeated the process, t- took the blood pressure, checked, thought this machine's broken, did it again, told me that somebody said, I'd rather have roll the dice every morning right now than having your chance of a stroke or a heart attack that was a moment and yeah. um, and so you know 
getting back on the fitness trail um, taking so it's a life changing moment isn't yeah it? it is a life changing moment and um, you know I, I would say to anybody as an entrepreneur and clearly you know this Warren because I'm looking at you right now and you've got broken collarbones again <laughs> from riding your bike but I think um, it's it's clear to most of us as entrepreneurs that one of the ways we have to deal with stress is to maintain a level of fitness yeah I think that you know there are certain things that the stress of running a business requires us to be mentally fit so that we can be um you know, help physically fit so that we can be mentally fit. Yeah. I, I think it's really difficult to be mentally fit if you're not physically fit. Yeah. I mean, you can do it for a bit, right? But I actually think the two things are so linked that, um, you know, most of us learn eventually that it requires physical fitness um, to yeah. be an entrepreneur and deal with the stress. And and also it's, it requires other things. It requires us to have a support network. And I know, you know, your, your Evolve yeah, group is exactly one of those. So I'll give you a quick I, I know, on Yeah, that. thank you. Uh, um, but that, it provides value for entrepreneurs to deal with that kind of pressure and that kind of stress. And I think it's so important, isn't it? And it's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate, you know, and, and how Evolve has come about is that I do think, you know, that this piece around holistic success, and I, I say it time and time again, is that there's so many people out there that beat the drum that success is purely having the money in the bank account and a business that's growing and and all of those things and being successful in business where they neglect to say, actually, sometimes if that's all you focus on, Mm. then your personal life ain't going to be great. Your mental well-being is going to be really poor. And your physical health will suffer and you'll suffer, you know, your family and your friends and all of that. And therefore you've got to, in business and in life, have this view of holistic success which is a balance between being successful in career as a business leader and in business as well as being successful personally well i I think everybody's definition of success is unique and and it should be you know because i think if the definition of success is simply using money as a scorecard i think that's almost a sickness because life's got to be about more than that, surely. Because otherwise, we'd all just end up like small the dragon, you know, on a pile of gold, counting our gold, and and being a greedy dragon living in a cold mountain all on our own. In a really lonely place. Yeah, and you know, there was a moment I remember when I had the honour of being the president of Dorset Chamber of Commerce yeah. and Industry, and I remember being in a curry after after work one day with a group of guys, and and frankly, one of them turned around and said. I don't know why they made you president, Paul. You're not as successful as some of us around here, which meant you're not as successful as me. And I I didn't actually turn around and say, but you've got two broken marriages and six estranged children. What kind of success is that exactly? Because that's what you've got to ask yourself, isn't it? It's definitely the pursuit of money over something as important as your marriage or the relationship with your kids doesn't sound like success to me but i'd, I'd lost balance really. yeah you know i'd lost you're balance right. for some people there is a different definition yeah. so what so then what happened obviously you went to hospital you know that mm. was that moment of truth mm. and, and was it a switch was it i need to exercise i need to yeah it was a uh, it was one of those things that you know there's no point being the richest corpse in the graveyard i'm no good to my wife Tanith and my my three kids yeah no matter how much money they would i know they you know i've been through tremendous hardship with Tanith, and i know that our relationship didn't require money you know our yeah. relationship was forged in the most difficult of times in, in our 20s when we got through i can't know how we got through some having three kids and almost no <laughs> money and two yeah. failed businesses in our 20s but you know it taught us that our relationship was the single most important thing and that the relationship with the kids was really important. And I neglected both of those, not for any other reason. I thought I was doing the right thing to provide for them, yeah. inverted commas. But, you know, it's about getting as that whole thing needs to be right. And, you know, if, if you're not physically fit, 
And therefore, probably, there's a matter of time until you're not mentally fit either. And I would share with you another thing, which at that point when I was overworking, I suddenly realised that I hadn't really laughed properly for six months. And I went to the doctor and I said, I don't know what depression is. I I don't feel depressed, but I just don't remember feeling truly happy for a long time either. And he said, do you want tablets? I said, absolutely not. I just want to know, I want to understand why this is. You know, I'm a very lucky guy. I feel blessed. But, you know, and it was just overwork. And the guy just asked me some questions and I just found myself saying, you know, how how much are you working? 16 hours a day, 12 to 16 hours a day. Oh, really? Uh, How long do you do that? Well, at least five days and sometimes six days a week. And as it was all coming out, (laughs) I was realizing just how balanced my life had become. And it was just mental, really. So I just had to get a grip on it. I promised Tanith I would limit my working days to a maximum of 12 hours. uh, (laughs) And I would definitely exercise. And so she got up with me and she she went running with me three days a week down the beach, which was lovely. And yeah. no matter what the temperature, we did it in minus four, minus six in February. We did that for six years. And, yeah. um, and she got up on those cold mornings when she didn't want to or didn't have to. And, you know, we, we held hands on the beach. We had the beach to, our, to ourselves. We had some real quality time. We walked and then we ran until we could run all the way down to the pier. And then we would sprint and walk back. And out of that, you know, came some beautiful moments because, you know, I can still remember lots of mornings where we had the beach to ourselves, the moonlight was glinting on the water and we were walking along holding hands between sprints. And uh, you know, that is terribly romantic, right? Yeah. And, it, and, and so all of that stuff. And um, I felt eternally grateful for having a wife that would do that for me. And that would, um, you know, that was, you know, I can feel myself welling up a little bit just thinking about it. But so, yeah, out of that comes some really hard, harsh lessons, which is if you don't look after yourself physically, then you can't look after yourself mentally. So you're not really. And if you get that whole time balance distortion thing going on, you kid yourself, don't you, that you're you're doing it for all the right reasons. Right. As entrepreneurs, yeah, well, I am working this hard because I'm going to provide my family and everything else. Did you stop and ask your wife whether she'd actually prefer less money and less success, but more of time with you? Did you, you know, that time that you sacrificed when you thought you were giving up your weekend, you weren't just giving up your weekend. You were giving up your kid's weekend mm-hmm. and you were giving up your wife's weekend. And, and so that we all need to just ask ourselves some questions, really. Why are we doing this? What is this thing that we're chasing? You know, and I think that it's difficult. And sometimes you just need to, you need to have that network of people. Just you just need to be able to find the opportunity, which is sometimes easier said than done in a busy life to stop and reflect and use a sounding board, use somebody and just take some time out. But when you're at the coalface working 16 hour days, five, six days a week, that just doesn't feel realistic, does it? And, and that's yeah. the difficulty is sometimes you need that wake up call, that moment of truth, however hard it is yeah. when it comes to change life. Because if you hadn't had that medical that day, mm. where would where would life have taken you? You never know, do you? And I suppose the question I would quite ask is somebody listening to this and, you know, you had to support Tanith and you, and you had that resolve to do something about it. But sometimes when somebody's working at the coalface that hard, the difficult piece to change is not the ability to want to change. It's that they then go back in their business and that, that pressure is still there the following Monday. Mm-hmm. So what did you change in the business as well? You know, we've heard what you changed personally, but how did you make the change in the business to give yourself the time and space to get a better balance? Well, that was a, and that was about realizing that, you know, I was trying to do everything. I was trying to be the managing director and the sales director and the marketing director all in one go. Yeah. And, 
know, trying to be all of those things. I realised that I was I was taking on too many roles and that I didn't really know how to be a managing director, if the truth be known, because I've been the sales director all this time and I just thought I'd bolt the managing director job onto being the sales director, which now seems a bit silly because being a managing director of a company, you know, we were employing up to 50 people at one stage, you, yeah. know, it was, you know, employing across two offices and being the managing director of a company is, is a full-time job. Yeah. You have to have people who will pick up the mantle of being the sales director and everything else. So we needed to get key people in who would... Okay accept the responsibility and take the weight really so this was about rebuilding the team yeah because I suppose at that point yeah. you'd kind of your your original founders along the way had you know evolved mm. into something new done something different world gone off mm. you know i suppose this was about finding that team again that you could work with yeah that, from and, and grow the people within the business to take responsibility yeah and i think that a lot of these things, Warren, and I'm sure you will appreciate a lot of this stuff yourself, yourself from your own experience. But you know, sometimes when we're when we're the front man for our business, we're not doing ourselves a long term favour by um, being that front man and being. You know, if someone says who is Intergage and they say it's Paul Tansy's company, that's all very well. But actually, you need to build a brand that doesn't revolve around Paul Tansy because otherwise, it'll always be about me, and I, it shouldn't be. It should be about. No the brand and it should be about the team and it should be about everybody else so, that, so we have to go through a point sometimes when we're clearly the front man for our business i'm the one going out there doing the networking doing the public speaking doing the you know the sales presentations and everything else and so everybody sees me and that has to stop i have to take a step back and it has to be about the other people have yeah. to step forward and um and that's sometimes easier to say than t- to achieve um so you know we do need other people to grow and we need to give them the space to grow yeah. and and sometimes you know, if if we're flawed leaders, as we all are, then sometimes we're guilty of not giving those people enough space to grow, to grow into our shoes, so to move forwards. And and so I was definitely guilty of that it, too. And I think you used the word earlier, isn't it? It's a true reflection, I think, and it happens in a lot of businesses, is the ego gets in the way, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Again. Yeah, of course. I mean, That's the challenge. You know, what drives us, I think there is, you know, it would be a brave man to say... Um, that ego doesn't play a part. You know? yeah. I think that sometimes it plays too big a part. Yeah. And that, you know, we see our personal successes as tied in with the success of the business. And so, you know, when people refer to your company as a successful local business and use you as an example of things and stuff, yeah. it does feel good. Um, but, but, but the thing is, you can get it out of perspective. And it's not that important you know I, I found that I needed to write down what was truly important to me mm. in a place where I'd look at it pretty much every day and so in the front of my every workbook when I finish it I start to I rewrite my my mission statement my personal mission statement and it always starts with the thing that, that's most important which is the relationship with my wife and how yeah. you know remembering why I do this is for us and not just for me and you know what do I really want to be well I want to be the role model for my children and my grandchildren that they deserve and that means being a role model that isn't just this busy maniac yeah um it's as somebody who has got the time to spend with them who is getting that balance right and um, but at the same time, I want them to see that hard work and unbending ethics. Uh, you know, one thing that nobody can level at Intergage ever is the fact that we behave badly. You know, we we just don't. We pay everybody on time. Interesting. So one of the things I wanted to touch on with you actually, and it kind of rolls on from what you've just said, is we talk about you know the face of the business, not necessarily being needing to be Paul Tansy. It's got to be the brand Intergage. But 
you're one of those businesses that I admire that has got great values, great ethics, wants to, will do the right thing, even if it's mm. even if no one's looking and it costs money. Yeah, yeah and, and all of that, those things. And therefore, that's your personal values reflecting into the company. And ha- so my question is, how important do you think it is for a business, the business owner's own personal values to be reflective of those of the company? Well, yeah, this whole idea about mission and purpose. And, um, you know, I've been saying for a long time that, you know, a marketing agency has a really useful purpose in society. You know, our job is to help other businesses grow so that they, we can help contribute growth, employment and opportunity. You know, so we have to be really valuable. And you know what? In these times, and particularly the difficult times around COVID-19 and everything, we're seeing businesses that do their marketing well, surviving despite the most difficult of times very often. Yeah. And that's a, a, obviously, that can't be the case if you're in hospitality sometimes yeah. like, or event industry. Yeah. But you know, even then, we've helped companies pivot within those industries and things. So marketing really works. It really has a value. And I think that if, if you've got a strong sense of purpose... And I, I know that you know mission, vision, and values is somewhat cheesy and corny, and that you know, we can call it essence, spirit, and, spirit and, and beliefs. And beliefs yeah. But you know, all of those things really matter. Yeah. And unless you're open and transparent about it, if if you if you don't get those things right, and you're not open and transparent with everybody about what you believe and why you think you're here, um, you you can't attract people. If you do get it right, then I think certain businesses become magnetic. And I don't believe, for example, that businesses that have a strong sense of purpose ever have a problem recruiting. You know, I think that it becomes magnetic to talent and it becomes yeah. to a certain extent magnetic to, to customers as well, you know, because there's a, a trust thing going on. And if your staff, for example, when they leave your business, do the staff that leave your business say good things or do they say bad things? You know, when they leave and they leave well, and they say, this company lived their values and I'm leaving for a good reason. Yeah. And then I think that's a real mark of a company that lives its values. And I think that if the people that leave your business say that company was what it said it was on the tin, then that's a really good indicator. That's a sign of success. Yeah, because you're building a business that has a sense of purpose. And of course, profit's important because it's oxygen. And without oxygen, our businesses die. But I think it's more important to have a sense of purpose that people believe in than it is to focus on making massive profits because I think massive profits will come when naturally you become the best you can be in your industry. It becomes a good point. Yeah, I've, I've quite often said you know, you, you've got to focus on cash and, and profit is really important, but profit tends to be in really successful businesses the consequence of doing the other things right and serving your customers better than anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. And if you focus on purely the money, the money never quite comes. Absolutely. I mean, Because you're doing the wrong things in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. Yeah, yeah, completely. If you make decisions based on purely on how much profit you're going to make, well, I think that Fred Reichel had a really interesting slant on this. He's the guy who came up with the sort of, the NPS score system, yeah, where you know when you ask customers on a scale of zero to ten, how likely are you to recommend us to a friend or a colleague, and and you know if they score you nine or ten, the company that has the highest net promoter score in every industry outperforms its nearest nearest competitor by two point four wow. times. So that's an extraordinary thing. Then that's if you can make your customers happier than everybody else can make your their customers. Ultimately, in this ultra connected world that we live in. That has to be the deciding factor, doesn't it? Definitely. And, you know, and while sometimes customer relationships don't work, 
And there are reasons for that. You know, there are reasons why every relationship doesn't work. You can still like the relationship with your employees when they leave. You can still be big boys and understand that the relationship didn't work for a reason. Yeah. And maybe it wasn't anybody's specific fault. But if people still leave you as a customer, as an employer, um, and saying good things about you and believing that you were trying to live your values, then I think that, you know, life can't be too bad, can it? No, definitely not. So you're, you, you sound like somebody that is currently enjoying life and is inspired and is in a good place. So where do you get your inspiration from, Paul? Where do I get my inspiration from? Well, I think reading or listening to um, audio and indeed podcasts is, is becoming part of that. Podcasts, you know, when I'm getting up in the mornings and I've got that precious two hours before you know, work starts at nine, then, you know, putting a podcast on is a great way to get inspiration these days. And, you know, since podcasts became available on Spotify, um, because I'm an Android person, not an Apple person, <laughs> um, then I found that, you know, that, that's, been, that's kind of been game-changing in terms of inspiration as well. And when I, I listen to podcasts, particularly, you know, the stories of, of local business people that I've listened to and, and on your podcast yeah. has been excellent. Thank but, you. Um, you know, who can't learn from people like Mark Brooks, for yeah. example. You know, a fantastic local businessman and a great story. So um, that's great. But I think it's really important to keep putting positive things in. But I think also that, and I've got to be really careful about this, because like I say, if you've lost someone you love or or your business has gone tits up or, you know, it's really struggling, maybe you've built a business for decades and it's just disintegrated because of COVID-19, what you don't want somebody saying is, oh, COVID, this is such an exciting and interesting time. But actually, isn't it? You know, but I, I, with due, due respect to everybody who's, who's yeah, suffered. Change is occurring, isn't it? And yeah, change that, presents opportunity. It does. And, you know, that that's a stimulant. And there's a certain element of, of entrepreneur who's stimulated by change and opportunity. Yeah. And um, and well, since COVID-19 came along, and it's awful if, if I'm saying this to the wrong person, but the very fact that change is happening even faster you know, our, our business is about evolving, yeah. right? And the, you live in the digital world, yeah, so that's yeah, changing yeah. rapidly anyway. Oh, yeah. And you have a business called Evolve, yeah. right? So, <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're not, we're not. It's not like we're on different paths here. Um, but our strapline is um, evolving B two B marketing. Yeah. So, um, you know, evolution happening fast is exciting, and things that are changing. You know, the, the ability to make sales without having face to face meetings is potentially game changing for mm. so many businesses. As we all get used to this, you know, this for, this new form of doing business without yeah. necessarily getting in cars, wasting all that time. In fact, this morning I got in a car, drove to a meeting, and thought. This sounds, feels weird. This is archaic. <laughs> it's inefficient. It's yeah. almost stupidity, yeah. really. Because, you know, I, I, it was important to the person I was going to see, uh, and I will do one meeting next week along the same way, but I'll probably, I'll probably do 12 meetings next week, and only one of them will be face-to-face. Yeah. And, you know, that's a massive change, and it presents all kinds of opportunities. Yeah. So, you know, if we get good at this, then, you know, business can can evolve rapidly and it presents all kinds of new opportunities. It's interesting. We had Mark Northy on the podcast last week from Norco Manufacturing Business based uh, over at Holton Heath in Winforth. And he said, out of the current kind of COVID crisis, not quite the same, but something different for the first time in a long while. He's feel, felt needed mm. in his business and that's what was inspiring him. It's yeah. a similar well, it's different between, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Leadership versus management, right? Management yeah. is business Definitely. as usual. Leadership is change. Yeah. And um, and I think that's the difference. So it's a good time for leaders to do their thing. Definitely. 
Just want to wrap up on Chambers of Trade, actually, because you've already mentioned on the podcast, and I know how proud you were mm. to have been the president of the Dorset Chamber of Trade Industry mm. um, in 2018, yeah. a few years ago. So... Just a little plug for the chambers, really. I mean, what's the importance, in your opinion, of the chambers to entrepreneurial businesses and to business in the UK? Well, I think that uh, they operate on a number of levels. We've already talked about the loneliness of entrepreneurship. And there are times when we don't talk to our wives like we should, because yeah. sometimes we don't want to burden them. Uh, we can't talk to the people in our business about it because we don't want to freak them out, particularly if we're freaked out. And so having a network of other entrepreneurs is always really, really useful. Uh, I think one of the things when Ian Gerling took over the Dorset Chamber, then it was a, a, a much younger man yeah. in control. And and I identified with, with what Ian was trying to achieve. And that was really trying to set up a chamber where rather than, you know, 800 businesses all trying to sell to each other, the mantra became, let's walk into a room and rather, if there's 100 people in the room, rather than try and sell to the other 99, just find one or two to help. So actually, if you have a chamber where 799 other businesses are trying to help you rather than sell to you, it's a subtle but mm. important change in the mentality of what a chamber is all about. Too many people see these any kind of network group as an opportunity to do the room and do crass yeah. selling. Actually, if you walk into the room and try and genuinely find people to help, and if imagine a world where everybody did that uh, all the time, right? That would just be... And I think Dorset Chamber is on that path. You know, that's its mission is is to, and it's a warm and it is a supportive environment. And and so I, you know, I'm proud that um, Dorset Chamber has that mantra that you yeah. know that we are businesses here to support and help other businesses. A success for a Dorset business is a success for all of us because it creates more opportunity, more wealth, more employment yeah. in our area. Definitely. And and so we should we need to learn to celebrate everybody's successes and to do whatever we can to make all of our businesses. Um, successful because you know it we create a a healthier environment in which we can all we all win exactly and it's being part of an ecosystem and i think sometimes you have to grow up a bit before you realize that you're part of an ecosystem you're not a you know a lone a lone bacteria here you're a part of a big bigger wide world and you know part of the community i mean it's just something you know i'm very passionate about as i know you are is Mm. actually we play a role running a business yeah and actually our role includes being part of that wider community and helping that wider community to succeed. Absolutely. You know, be it third parties, be it charities, be it... Helping young kids. Helping young um, kids. You know, know, that's, you know, I think it's really important that businesses things build like bridges. Time, yeah, yeah. And, and bringing and educating and supporting the wider community yeah. in which we operate. Absolutely. Paul, it's been great having you on the podcast. If people want to learn more about Paul or Engage, where can they go and find out more information? Well, if I haven't bored them to death already, they can go to www.intergage.co.uk or, or join me on LinkedIn. Brilliant. It would be a pleasure. But um, thank you, Warren. Really enjoyed being here. It's always fun. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you for being a guest. <laughs> You're welcome. I feel like Paul's story is one that mirrors a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners. There's that rush of early, frantic success followed by significant challenges, whether financial or personal. It's at this point that experience, resolve and a burning desire to ultimately succeed separates those who fail and give up immediately and those who pull themselves up and explore new ideas and solutions that will eventually realise their dreams. 
Whether you're an experienced business owner or someone just starting out, I hope that this very honest account by Paul has given you some valuable insight into the importance of persistence and self-belief, as well as looking after your well-being and staying true to your company values. To find out more about Evolve, then please do go to evolvemembers.com where you'll find some great content as well as information on peer groups, one-to-one coaching and events. We've got some great webinars lined up for the coming weeks and all the information can be found on that website, evolvemembers.com or on our social media pages. I really hope you've enjoyed the podcast. If you haven't yet, please click that subscribe button so you can get your weekly Evolve podcast delivered automatically to your device. We're constantly striving to bring you guests who provide new insights and value to you, whether it's to do with your work life or personal well-being. Thank you for listening and from all the Evolve team, we wish you a great week and hope to see you again soon.